If you're a fan of our live tweets, podcasts, editorials, YouTube videos, and BGM meetups all over the country, then go to patreon.com forward slash blackgirlnerds. There you can show your support. Every little dollar counts, and it goes a long way. Allow us to maintain our sustainability, and also to stay consistent and to be able to fund all of the rich content that we pour out every day in this digital space. So go to patreon.com forward slash blackgirlnerds. And thanks for all of your support. Hello everyone, my name is Malik Forte. I am a professional nobody, but you might have seen my work on Nerdist.com or soon Bleacher Report, and you are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hello, this is filmmaker Victoria Mahoney, and you're listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, I'm Joy Bryant, and I'm a Black Girl Nerd, and you are listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. tuning in to episode 73 of the black girl nerds podcast my name is jamie and i am your host this episode is titled daryl m bell the lemonade syllabus and power rangers three segments first segment is with daryl m bell you know him best as ron johnson from the sitcom series a different world and he talks to us not only about that tv series but about his film work and really interesting experiences that he had in Hollywood, and also how he's developing some new content within the YouTube space. And in that segment, it is co-hosted by Karan, KB, and Kayla. In our second segment, we feature Candace Bembo. Candace has recently got press for the Lemonade Syllabus. The Lemonade Syllabus features content such as Black Feminist Studies, womanist theology, poetry and photography, music, theater and film and documentary content, and this was created shortly after Beyonce's visual album Lemonade was released and it's gotten buzz all over. And that is a one-on-one interview hosted by Karan. In our third segment, we invite Nakia Baris. Nakia Baris is an actress who has worked on shows such as the Power Rangers Zio, Turbo, a Power Rangers movie, and Power Rangers Turbo, the TV series. 
She's got a new web series called Class Dismiss, and she chats with Alexis on this one-on-one interview. So I hope you enjoy the show. This is really great. I think you're going to get a lot of insight from people who are veterans in the Hollywood industry to someone who is a new innovator creating a syllabus for black women and feminist theory and to someone who is in the geek space with the Power Rangers franchise, which I know many of you are fans of, talking about our latest project class dismiss. Make sure you check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. Subscribe to all three. Go ahead, take a chance. And remember, in the iTunes space, your ratings matter. We get more visibility that way, and with more visibility comes a lot of opportunity. So give us those ratings if you're enjoying these shows from week to week. Let us know what you think as well. Give us a comment on SoundCloud and throw in a little bit of hearts there. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Daryl M. Bell is best known as the smooth-talking schemer Ron Johnson on a different world. He's also had a supporting role in Spike Lee's School Days, along with Jasmine Guy and Kadeem Hardison. Bell also appeared on Living Single, Cosby, For Your Love, and co-starred in Homeboys in Outer Space. His longtime partnership with Tempest Bledsoe, who also played Vanessa on The Cosby Show, has gone long and strong for over 20 years. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. I am so stoked right now at this interview that we are about to do. We have the one and the only Daryl M. Bell here on our show. You know him best as Big Brother X-Ray Vision in School Days and also Ron Johnson on A Different World. Daryl, thank you so much for coming on the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Why, thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> Indeed, yes. <laughs> and we have our co-hosts, Karan, Kayla, and KB. Thank you, ladies, for coming on. Thank you. Hey, Daryl. Thank you. And let, me, let me reiterate, it's good to talk to all of you. How about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> excited to have you on. So I, I want to jump into this because A Different World has had such a huge impact on all of us, and mostly college-bound black students. And films like School Days, which you were also in, was so profound for many of us. While you were making A Different World with the rest of the cast, did it ever dawn on you how the show was influencing so many viewers to attend historically black colleges and universities, as well as joining black fraternities and sororities? Sure, it did. I, I knew. If you ask everyone in the cast, it's funny. We were all on Steve Harvey's show, and they played this little game with us where they gave us basically like a, a, a die, like a, a single cube, and it had all of our faces on it. And we were supposed to say, who's the most likely? And they would ask a question, and we would flip to the picture of who was most likely to do whatever. And if you had to say who was most likely to know the impact of our show, they would all turn to my picture because I felt it 
while we were doing it. I, I knew at the time, and again, for me, my career was launched purely by happenstance. I was preparing to be an investment banker with my dad. My father was the first African-American member of the New York Stock Exchange. So I was going to Syracuse and had fully intended to become an investment banker. I met Spike Lee on the outside of the theater in 68th Street in Manhattan, asked him for a part in his next movie, and that was School Days. So I left Syracuse to go do School Days. After School Days, instead of going to summer school, I came to Los Angeles. And in the fall, right when it was time to go back to school, they were casting for a different world. I got cast in a different world, and I never looked back. But for me, because my father had made history in the world of finance and banking, I always had a sense of things that were important for African-Americans. And for us, we were young. We were all in our 20s, but we were the number two show on all of television. There were people that had worked their entire careers and had never been on a show that highly rated. There was at least one or two weeks where we were the number one show on television. And there are people who are very successful and very big stars who've never had that. And I can only tell you that on... One occasion, and everyone talks about the wedding episode where we had Richard Roundtree, Ron O'Neill, Patti LaBelle, Diane Carroll, Glenn Turman, Mike Warren. If you just go through the list of stars and their collective careers, we knew it was something special. I certainly knew it was something special. And, you know, numbers simply tell you if you're number one or number two, there's really no place to go but down. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's really it. Uh, so that's a long-winded answer for me that I always knew. I always knew that it was special. And I can also say that because I had just come from, I mean, literally left college campus to go and shoot school days. And because I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, oh, six, <laughs> I knew how special it was to me. I knew what it was like to be able to take the experiences that had imprinted my life as a young men in a fraternity and to play that not only on film, but then have the opportunity to do that. I got to pledge two fictitious fraternities. I'm a member of three fraternities. Now, you know, I'm a, an alpha, I'm a gamma, and I'm a capital or new. So not everyone has that kind of experience to say, yes, I, I get how it really was important. And I knew that. How's that for a long-winded answer? The podcast is over. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just absorbing this. This is amazing hearing this. I mean, you're, you're obviously making such an impact, and you're doing it in a different way in the YouTube space. I understand you're building a YouTube channel from the ground up, one yeah. subscriber at a time, and showing others how they can do the same. So can you tell us a little bit more about this project? Yeah, as, as I've talked to young people who always want to know how to get in the business, we're we're nowhere in entertainment. We, we want to be an actor or a writer or a director or something, and we don't have an agent. We don't know what to do. The barrier to being successful in Hollywood used to be distribution. Distribution was locked up by the television networks and the movie studios, and if you were not on the inside, you were locked out. Well, the Internet has changed all that. Distribution is free, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, pick wherever you want To place your content, you can do so for free. It is now up to you to create great content and then build an audience. And if you build an audience, you can then monetize that audience. 
That being said, there was a time when I was working on a project with some of the YouTube executives, and although that project didn't come to fruition, frequently they would say to me, why don't you start your own channel? And I thought, well, maybe, but I was busy doing multiple things. And I also have friends who have really successful YouTube channels with millions of viewers. I'm friends with people that run MCNs, multi-channel networks. You know, I have all sorts of people who are prolific in that space. But your average aspiring actor doesn't have that kind of connection. So I didn't want to just talk about it. I wanted to be about it. So I chose to take my Sony cam and decided to write, shoot, produce, and edit everything on my channel to say, if I can do it, so can you. I'm doing it all just for, not only for the proof of concept for anyone who wants to do that, but it's also my own film school. For me, the next challenge for me, in addition to being a producer and a writer and an actor, is to direct. I've not actually directed yet. So that's part of what I'm also going through with this YouTube channel, and I am excited to do so. And at the moment, you know, it's funny how every time you get the little email, you have a new subscriber. I'm like, Hercules, Hercules. I'm so <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> One more time. It's just beautiful. It's exciting. You know, so it's fun. And it also, particularly now, because probably the only subscribers on my channel are my closest friends and family, it allows me time to really get better because the really the skill set of editing, which is so important. Everyone talks about some of your favorite films. You know, it was the editor that made it great. And and that is a skill set that is really complicated. I was in a Final Cut Pro class last weekend, and it's only when you see a master editor at work can you appreciate how much work you have to do and have to learn. Because while he was demonstrating the complexities of his edit, he would move things around and change things. I'm like, oh, my God, don't do that. I'll never know how to put that back. You know, I mean, that's how I look at my simplistic sense or capacity. But it's growing and getting better, and I'm having a ball doing it. I'm telling you, you're only going to get to ask me, like, three questions, then it's going to be Sunday night. And you're going to be like, my goodness. <laughs> So we need to be school. We need this education. So keep at it. <laughs> Hi, Daryl. This is Kayla. And um, my question to you, and, and just for me, Ron was my basis for what I would later look for in a partner, a sense of humor and really persistent in the pursuit of the woman he loved. So I think we want to know how much of Ron is Daryl. That's interesting. And, and what, what I really find interesting, you're one of the few people on the planet who ever said that Ron was a model for a man. Now, that, 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 right there. Because most of them, Ron and Kyle were trying to tell him how to get lost. You understand what I'm saying? So the funny thing is that, that what I would say, without question, Ron and I look a lot alike and we sound a lot alike. So we can start there. Two, I like to think that he was funny. I have a sense of humor. There's certainly that in me. He was he was an aspiring entrepreneur. That is certainly me. That is in my DNA, entrepreneurship. Where we would differ, one is in our, our style of dress. You know, there were days that Ron put some clothes on. And I was like, whoo, Lord have mercy. He must not have a mirror in his house. You know what I mean? It just, it was special. But what I liked about Ron was that he was intensely loyal. And I think You've identified something that is important, particularly for our young men. When there was a woman that they were attracted to, 
They were not afraid to declare their interests. Mm -hmm. They would pursue and they would covet and they would protect. And Ron would do all of those things. And I think that's wildly important, particularly for young men of color, to learn what it's like to be a man. There was a time when if you were a suitor for a young woman, you had to prove yourself worthy. You had to, to be able to provide. You had to be able to let her know she was secure. You had to let the family know yes. you were worthy. And a lot of that has been lost. But I think that was one of the things that you saw through Ron's maturation when he stopped floundering in college and went on to start his own club. He started earning money. He started having plans for expansion. He was building his empire and he wanted his queen by his side. And you could see, don't let me start talking about what could be in a reboot of a different world. You could see from the relationship that Ron and Freddie had once she'd become the lawyer, it was a power couple that was coming together. The two of them were going to do great things in addition to making some very pretty babies. <laughs> Can I just jump in and say that speaking of power couples, I totally yeah. did not know until this year that you were married to Tempest Bloodsoe. Vanessa from the Cosby Show guys. Had no idea. And you guys have been together for over 20 years? The the answer is yes, we've been together. Technically, I just want to say that we haven't gotten married. You can't believe everything you read on the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, we, we have been together. And it's funny how people say that they, like, we had no idea. You know, whenever someone notices, they'll ask us about it. But as a general rule, you can see there are pictures of us online together for, you know, a long time. Yeah. But our our relationship and our work are separate. You know, we, we love to go out and promote the work that we do. But our relationship as a general rule, it's not for public consumption. I always find it somewhat hypocritical when you see famous people out, you know, doing talk shows and talking about all they're doing this and doing that, and then they're getting divorced, and they're like, please respect our privacy. I'm like, oh, no, you can't close the door now. You have to go, you talk about, come to the house with E.T., you know, and now you want privacy. I've always thought that was a double standard, which wasn't fair. If you're going to open the door, it should be for good times and bad times, and I tend to think, let the door stay closed. If someone asks me, I can acknowledge it, but I don't have to make that something else that I treat the same way I do my work, which is I'm evangelical about folks, you know, knowing what my work is. But, you know, your your relationship is a different sort of thing. It makes sense? Absolutely. 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 Oh, all right. Well, then I got a, I got a crew of women. I want y'all to say, hell no, they don't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> Mountaintop and shout. You know, I didn't know what you might say. So just... <laughs> Tell her we said hi, though. Right. I would do just that. So the transition from a long-running sitcom that ends to looking for the next project can be a difficult one. How did you approach this new journey after A Different World ended? Well, my 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 transition was different than most. Uh, unfortunately, while I was still working on A Different World, my father passed away. So. Even while the show was on the air, I would fly back and forth between New York and Los Angeles managing the brokerage business. And we also had a chocolate manufacturing firm and other business interests. 
as well as working on a different world. When the show went off the air, it allowed me to focus there. But then shortly after the show went off, I booked a pilot with Diane English called Lawyers. It didn't actually end up going to series, but there was another show that came right behind it. So for me, I was really lucky that there were additional work opportunities for me, like right after A Different World. And that was comforting for me. For everyone that wonders when your show is canceled, will I ever work again? Or will anyone see me as something other than this character that's been in everyone's home for six years? And the answer was yes. And that, that gave me a lot of confidence to relax and try to look for other opportunities that really spoke to me. And um, so it, it, I, I had an easier time than a lot of people. But it, it was nothing is ever guaranteed in, in our industry. So still, there has yet to be the experience to supersede the experience of a different world. The, we are, it, I mean, you can look at all of us when we still get together. There is chemistry there that you just can't manufacture. It is just organic to who we all are. And it's also what helped everything on screen because we all do like each other. We get along well with each other and that's special. So not that it could never happen again, but something to be where we were all that close. We were all that young. We all were experiencing the same type of success at the same time. It will be hard for something to, to come and do better than that. I'm I'm happy to welcome something to do just as well, though. So let me say that. <laughs> if somebody's writing a pilot, please, please do just as well or do better. I'll, you know, you never know. Hi, Daryl. It's KB here. So how did playing Ron Johnson change your life? And also, what's the most positive or interesting feedback that you've received from a fan about the show? Hmm. Well, it certainly changed my life. Uh, even though we shot school days first, a different world was on the air first because it took school days probably a, a year in post until it was released. So for me, and I, I'd say for all of us, uh, I wasn't anonymous anymore. That's, that's probably the biggest change. You know, I, I literally was at a dealership today where I just had to switch out a a cord, just a, a cord to connect my iPod in the car. And there was an Asian woman who was waiting in line. There was a Caucasian man who was the service or a parts guy. And there was, uh, I wanted to say he was Armenian, uh, the gentleman who was the cashier. And the service guy said, are you Daryl M. Bell? And then the Asian lady said, Oh, it's the little one from a different world. And I was like, oh, my God, did she just say the little one from a different world? <laughs> really? She was like, with the, the southern girl who had the accent. Yes. I mean, and then the other guy was like, oh, yeah, I remember that show. And that was a, a perfect, you know, snapshot of what our audience was like. Here were three different people from three different backgrounds. They were three different age groups, and they all watched the show. So this is, you know. 20, 30 years after A Different World premiered. So in that sense, that's been different for Daryl. I would say the other thing that's different for Daryl, uh, that's probably true for all of us, that notwithstanding what any of us have done in our careers 
subsequent to a different world because a different world had such an impact on television and the audiences and the like. It also had a significant impact with our peer group. So even though, you know, I'm not starring on something today, if I see one of my peers, if I see Cedric out or if I see Chris Rock somewhere, if I see any of our peers who might be in a project that is, you know, working today, you are part of that fraternity of working and successful actors. And that's different. There's a point at which you just feel like you belong when you sit in a room and talk with other people and other artists who are successful and, and good at what they do. And you are comfortable in that room to share your ideas and thoughts. So when, when you're a young actor, I can remember sitting around, heck, sitting with Mary Alice and Lou Myers and, and, and Glenn. And when they would talk, I would just listen. <laughs> I didn't want to get in the middle of whatever their conversation was because I thought I hadn't earned the right to talk. And that would be different. And then I talked for about an hour because the second part of your question was, how is it different for Daryl? Well, then there was another part. Oh, yes. Just, um, you know, what was the best type of feedback that you've received from a oh. fan about the show? Gosh, you know, it, it it's always I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I was potentially in a bad situation where many of my friends had, had joined gangs or, or had dropped out of school, and I saw a different world, and it made me want to go to college. And now I'm a doctor or I'm a lawyer or I'm an engineer or whatever it may be. I, I, we hear those stories all the time, and it never gets old. It never gets trite. It never gets anything short of, of gratifying. It is, you can't hope for anything more than to have that kind of impact on someone's life. As an artist, you, you hope to do something that will inspire people, that will reflect some truth in life. And, you know, it's just extraordinary when that gift keeps giving back. And it's also nice when, because if you weren't in the studio audience, when you get out and you get a chance to hear that feedback, it's a gift. It's a blessing. And I'm grateful for it. Amazing. So I read somewhere that you own your own independent production company. Sure. What type of content do you have currently in the works? And what do you think is missing from TV and or the big screen today? Ooh, let's see. Well, now <clears throat> I want to sit back because this is going to be about another hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> we ready. We ready. Yeah, that was a grand question there that has a grand answer. All right, so I, currently I, I've got a, a film in development. Uh, it's a, a feature film based on the true story, and I'm working on a gritty hour drama television series. So those are the two things that I'm working on. I also have two unscripted series that are competition-style series because I, I actually enjoy it, – it's funny, I always tell people when they talk about reality, television is killing the landscape of entertainment. I would push back against that to say I believe most people think of docudramas. So I'm not going to call anybody out, but we all know the docudramas where sensational things happen and fights break out and all of these sorts of things where bad behavior seems to be rewarded. Those are the docudramas. On the flip side, I tend to love competition shows like So You Think You Can Dance, America's Got Talent, 
The Voice, American Idol. I, I like Survivor. I like The Amazing Race. Shark Tank is one of my favorite shows. I like Chopped, Cupcake Wars. I, all of these are reality series, and a lot of it's really fun. I like Pawn Stars. I like Undercover Boss, things that have stories that are aspirational, that, you know, you want to root for the people involved, and particularly the competition series, because as artists, even for young artists, because oftentimes you'll find on The Voice or Idol or America's Got Talent, you'll see, you know, this 18-year-old who said, I've wanted this my whole life. I'm like, you've been alive three minutes. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, your whole life. <laughs> but you also see the, the artists who struggled for years, and you know they've been out on the road, and they get this break, and somebody finally says yes. And it just, it, it hits me in such a, a visceral way because I know what it's like to finally hear yes. If you've heard no a lot, it's good to win every now and then. It's great to feel that after all the times having all the doors slammed in your face, because as an artist, generally, it's not like you're selling a shovel or tires or, you know, some service. You're selling you. And when people tell you no, it's difficult not to take that very personally. So it's really encouraging for me because if I were ever interviewed on Inside the Actor's Studio, there's the questionnaire that James Lipton gives to all of the actors. And one of the questions is, what inspires you? What turns you on? And for me, without question, it's other people's success stories. I could listen to other people talk about how they succeeded all day and night. It, 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 it usually is a story that's filled with heartache, it's filled with setbacks, it's filled with challenges, and ultimately they won. They overcame. You can just see the tears welling up in everybody's eyes because it's so personal and it's hard. I mean, life is hard. Nothing is easy. And particularly in our industry, when people see, you know, all the glitz and glamour and think, isn't that fun? And they don't know how many just horror stories folks could tell about what it was like. Every time you watch the Oscars, you, you hear the people say, I just like to thank the studio. It only took us 14 years to get this movie made. You're like, 14 years? It's like, right. That's the struggle. That's what it's like. So for, for me, what's missing in, in entertainment, I would say, particularly as everyone has talked about diversity, I would talk about it with greater specificity. I don't think it's just diversity for, and if you're going to define diversity by the ethnicity of those who are allowed to tell stories. Because my experience is there's a lot of diversity in the people behind the cameras to some extent, but they're telling the same stories. Oftentimes when, when people bemoan some of the stories, particularly of those of color, they say, well, we, we've seen that before. We've seen this story before. We've seen this story before. It continues to portray the pathology of our community. And unfortunately, I see oftentimes with stories for people of color, what's missing is balance. Mm. If you want to tell the stories about those who, you know, grew up in a life of crime and struggling and, and were underprivileged and then they started you know, a business or something like that. I've seen a lot of stories like that. I don't know that I, I, I've seen a story like, well, where's 
uh, a version of Law and Order with black folks. You know, one mm. of my one of our my mm, favorite right? films set it off. Uh, I like just the heights. If you you see, where's the version of of Ocean's Eleven with mm-hmm. folks of color? Well, you know, mm-hmm. there there are so many different stories. Here's what's interesting. One of you know the the movie that Chris Rock made top five. If we were to take a survey and say, name your top five rappers, name your top five R&B singers, name your top five movies. I bet you everyone of color could do that. I said, okay, name the top five entrepreneurs on black enterprises, top 100 businesses. I bet you folks couldn't name one. Ooh, Mm, right. Now, that to me is emblematic of the type of, of just scarcity of diverse storytelling. Why, if, if we looked at all from suits to madmen, you know, of, of all the different businesses that have been explored, the landscape of business for folk of color has not been explored, particularly in a, a dramatic setting, in a really unique and dynamic way. There are so many ways one could do that, but it is a, um, a challenge, I would say, not only between the storytellers, but also, there is a degree to which, you know, some would argue that buyers need to be open to hearing different stories from diverse talent. There's some truth to that, too. But if you want to tell me what's missing, that's it. I want, there needs to be balance in diverse storytelling and different storytelling. And, of course, if you wanted to look, certainly um, my friend Ava DuVernay is, is one of the leading voices trying to say that there needs to be more opportunities for people to tell different stories. And it's true. It, it needs to happen. And again, you could turn to alternate or digital production in order to start that process. Uh, and, and that is certainly a way you could level the playing field. But that, that's what's missing. That is, that's what's missing on, on every level. That's my short answer. well it was a great one yes Daryl this is Karan we touched on this a little bit earlier but I'd like to know more specifically when was the first time that you realized the impact of a different world even to the point where people wanted to attend Hillman not realizing it was a fictitious institution and what did you feel in that moment that happens a lot people like where can I apply to Hillman I'm like oh sweetheart um work out well for you. I just want you to know right now. And I, you know, it's also a, a, a fight that happens between students that attend HBCUs because there are some that say Hillman is, is, is just a pseudonym for Hampton. I know that's what it is. Nobody yeah. else. Oh no, it's it's Morehouse. They're like, no, it's not. It's Spellman because the exteriors were shot at Spellman. I'm like, you know what? You're all right. It was supposed to be representative of all of those experiences. And it's true, there were some exteriors that were shot at Spelman, but there were some, also some exteriors that were right at CBS Radford Studios. Like Gilbert Hall was, I think if you go to Radford now, it's like building A. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but well, that's from the fan point of view. I will tell you, if you want to know from an industry point of view, it was when, when I realized something was different, it was this. It also just happens to be the second there's a B side to the story, which was one of the two times in my life I've been starstruck. So Debbie Allen invites Kadeem and I to a party 
because she was friends with George Michael's manager. And George Michael was performing a concert in Los Angeles, and his manager was having a after party at her house. And Debbie saw to it that Kadeem and I got an invitation. So Kadeem and I prepared to go to this party, and this is 19, probably 88. We get in my RX-7, and we drive to Beverly Hills. Now, when we arrive at this woman's home, it was the first time I had ever seen valet parking at somebody's house. And I was like, this is unusual. But I'm like, okay, we're, we're in a different league of party at the moment. So the valet comes to our car. I roll the window down. He sticks his head in and says, Mr. Bell, Mr. Hardison, good evening. And I'm like, how do you know who we are? You know, like, we didn't even say hello. You know? And I'm like, okay, well, so we're going to go inside. So we walk in, and as we're walking up the stairs to get to the house, Sam Kennison walked by. Jeffrey Osborne walked by. We saw Janet Jackson. I was like, oh, my goodness. It's going down here tonight. This is serious. Nice. We get to the back of the house, and the entire backyard is under a tent. They tented the entire backyard of this woman's Beverly Hills home. It is, like, gigantic. And I'm like, I have not been in anyone's house where the party was quite as off the chain like this. So as we sat there just taking it all in as young 20-year-old guys, Quincy Jones walks up to Kadeem and I and says, hey, fellas, I really enjoy your work. You guys are doing a great job. And we said, you know who we are? (laughs) (laughs) Quincy Jones talking to us, talking about our work. Are you serious right now? So we had to just suck that up and try to be cool for a minute. And he was like, yes, I, I, you know, you guys are doing a great job. And enjoy yourselves. Have fun. So, you know, he went on. And that was the first time for us that, you know, I, it, it just it, it was it was mind twisting that any not not one, not that we were in the same company as some of, you know, the most successful artists we'd ever seen. But literally of all people, of all people, I have. Quincy Jones be the one to say, you guys are doing a good job. That was just mind-blowing for us. So that's when I knew, okay, this show is just doing something special. It's not just the average person watching at home, but I'm like, you know, Quincy Jones paying attention. Okay. Now, after that, the B side of that story is as we are sitting there mingling around, and I'm, I, I am a MTV baby. I watched all the videos of the 80s of MTV when it first started. And as, you know, we're staring around the room, I just happened to look over my shoulder and standing directly behind me was Tom Petty, Bob Dylan, and George Harrison. Wow. What? This is while they were doing the traveling Willoughby's. And I'm like, okay, so money for nothing and your chicks for free. I'm like, Tom Petty is standing right there. You know, I watched that video day and night, right? And there's yeah. Tom Petty. Like, there's Bob Dylan. I don't even know what Bob Dylan sings, but I know it's Bob Dylan. And, <laughs> and this is George Harrison. I mean, I'm like, there's a beetle. There's a beetle standing right behind me. And not just any beetle. The beetle that nobody ever sees. The one that's <laughs> He's like Baltimore. You never see him. You know, and there he is. I was totally freaked out. So, yeah. There you go. That's my long starstruck story and how we knew it was making a difference. I love it. I could listen to you all day. Now, you've been with us most of our lives. 
and you mentioned you've yet to direct, and you're headed that way with your channel and production company. Yeah. My question is, if you could direct your own influence, what person, living or dead, would you spend the day with and why? That That is, whew, ah, that's, a, mm, that's a hard question to answer. I'm trying to be thoughtful about this. And I, I, I'm going to cheat. I, I don't know if you watch sports shows, but uh, Around the Horn is one of my favorite shows. And there's a game uh, called Over or Under. And Michael Wilbon will always say push. And Tony Kornheiser go crazy. He's like, that's not one of the options. You either got to go over or under. You can't push. So you've asked me who. So I'm going to cheat just like Michael Wilbon does on his show and say there are three for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly one would, and, and I would say first would be Jesus. If I had to sit down and talk with anybody, I would want to talk to Jesus. I would want to know this. I don't, we don't have time to go through the question, but that's one. And I think for obvious reasons, you would understand why one would want to have a substantive conversation there. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll go on that a little more to say that of all the things I think, should I be fortunate enough to cross the pearly gates and meet the Lord someday, I think one of the first things he will say is, boy, did y'all screw up that religion. Y'all, I mean, y'all just got that wrong, you know, mm-hmm. because the, it, there's so many different changes. And I am unsure of the specificity of the story, but the rumors are that, you know, Jesus didn't have any writings. You know, the Bible was written all by men, but they said that Jesus actually wrote one thing or rumored to have written one thing. And someone asked him, Lord, if I want to get to you, how how can I find you? And the answer was something akin to break a branch, you'll find me there. Turn over a rock and you'll find me there. Essentially, anywhere you look, you will find me and let nothing come between us. The idea that I'm everywhere, so no matter where you look, you're going to find me. But more importantly was the notion that he said, let nothing come between us. And the conspiracy theory is that the church hid it in order to cement the church's necessity so that people go to church instead of praying just directly to God and letting nothing come between them. I would love to know if that's true. So that would be one of my first questions. I'm like, Jesus, please, Lord, tell me, did you write it and did they hide it? All right, so there's one. Two would certainly be Dr. King. You know, it's not only uh, the fact that he was one of the greatest Americans of, of all time, but, you know, arguably one of the greatest human beings of all time. And, by the way, my frat brother, thank you very much. <laughs> there are so many people that I've met Congressman John Lewis, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Reverend Dr. Benjamin Hooks. There, there's so many people that I met that knew him, spent time with him, that marched with him, that, you know, I just would love the opportunity to have a conversation with him and, and not only talk about his struggles and, you know, what it was really like. And I, you know, for, for me, when I think about one of my favorite writings of his is the Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Yes. Mm. I'm going to misquote it. But, you know, at the end, he apologized for the length of the letter. He said he was sorry, but, you know, he's sitting in a jail cell. And what can you do in jail other than write long letters 
think long thoughts and pray long prayers. I said, woo, tell him, Doc. Come on. <laughs> it's not one of the, the most quoted lines, but for me, it resonates. Like, what else am I Because that's all I can do. That's all I can do while I sit here in prison in this struggle. Think, write, and pray. That's all I can do. And it, it, recently I just saw, I want to say it was a TED Talk, where there was someone and he was encapsulating some of the, you know, the greatest speeches ever. And certainly Dr. King's mountaintop speech was listed as like the greatest speech of all time. And it, the majority of that was improvised. He just, you know, went for it. And that's just a wealth of knowledge. And it's part of one of the reasons why I've even felt compelled to do more speaking engagements now that I'm a little older, because I think your obligation as you get older, one, as a younger person, it's your obligation to listen and learn. As you get older, it's your obligation to share and teach. And I feel, you know, I've had a successes in my life. I've had failures in my life. And there's a lot to learn from that. And in any way, I can impart that onto others and it can be useful to others, not only to help them avoid some of the missteps that I've made, but more importantly, hopefully to catapult them to greater successes than I've had. And that's my job to do that. So that's why I think in talking to Dr. King, there's just so much more knowledge that I wish I could mine from someone as great as he. And if I say the last one, uh, it would be my dad. Uh, I would love to have more time with him. You know, I lost my dad when I was 22, 23, somewhere around there. And if I could spend more time with him, I think of all the things my dad used to tell me as a young person that I understood, but the importance of its application now that I'm an adult and older are even more significant. The, the fact that he would always tell me to focus on the details, that's what differentiates tremendous success and being average. It's all in the details. When he would, he was evangelical about the notion that black people in our, this country are consumers, not producers. And if you want to control your future and your destiny and your community, you have to be a producer. And I'm trying to do that. And more importantly, you know, it, it is it, when you think about the collective community of men of color and they talk about how many men are fatherless. I certainly was not raised fatherless. And my well, my father's father outlived my father. My mother's father actually died first. But the fact that I didn't have the relationship that I see with lots of men with their fathers and their grandfathers and they're older and they're in their 80s and, and they've shared this life together and longevity. I didn't have that. So to be able to spend more time and talk to my dad with the perspective that I have on life now, that would be the other conversation I'd like to have. And oddly enough, between the three of them, they're all not living. So there you go. Wow. Amazing. Wow. This was a Masterclass episode, I have to say. Yes. More than just an interview. We learned so much about you, Daryl. Uh, thank you again for coming on our podcast. And before you go, can you just let our listeners know where they can find you on the interwebs, give us your social media handles, and also plug your YouTube channel? I am not as 
prolific as black girl nerds. Let me just confess that right now. <laughs> I, I am not sophisticated. I'm not prolific. I'm not. Let me tell you something. I, I, it, this, this is an acknowledgement, right? Because I'm kind of good with Outlook reminders and invitations and this sort of thing. But, you know, when, when reminders pop up on my phone that other people sent me, I'm like, see, I'm just so behind the times. I got to be better. So what I got your invite on the phone for today's interview. And I was like, another example how I just need to up my technological game. But certainly I'm on Twitter, Daryl and Bell Twitter, my own website, DarylandBell.com. Everything is almost always Daryl and Bell and my logo and everything uh, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, my website, my YouTube channel. I mean, of my YouTube channel, I have two, which is not good. My old YouTube channel is about to be consumed by my current YouTube channel, uh, but they both are me. And sooner or later, people that don't understand why they're not getting new videos because they subscribe to the old channel, I'm going to figure that out so that they can see the new one. But the new one, I think, is first in the search results now because I'm so active on it. So I can be found all those places. Thank you again for coming on our show. This was great. You know, I, I you guys have been great because y'all have been great listeners to somebody just running off at the mouth talking for 45 minutes nonstop. And Listen. I know you're, you're tapping your fingers going, can we get a word in it twice, please? <laughs> this no, is no, about you, it. and I, <laughs> I learned so much. I mean, we're talking about education, entertainment, spirituality. That's what I look forward to when we have these podcasts and these interviews. So this is what our listeners want. Multiple moments. You gave me multiple moments. I was about to start running around here and shouting for a couple times in here. <laughs> And that entertainment story, you know, mansion, God. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That was everything. So thank you. I I know it is my pleasure. I I want to congratulate all of you on your success in in hosting these podcasts, in, in being on the forefront for women of color who are nerdy and fabulous and, and great. And I think it's exceptional what you do. And I'm thrilled that you would have me in your world for at least an hour. Thank you. This was I great. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I love this. I love you yes. even more now. Oh, my God. <laughs> awesome. And uh, if, if Tempest ever wants to come on the show, she's invited. So feel free to pass the word along. I will do just that. <laughs> I- I can only promise you she's not going to run off at the mouth like me, though. See, I'm, I'm <laughs> Okay, so you're the one that does all the talking, and she just kind of yeah. sits back. Look, if there's a tape of the Norfolk event, because it's always true, and I know this. I even say it on my YouTube channel. I know I can tell a good story, but for goodness sake, I do tell long stories. I understand. And I'm, I'm trying to work on brevity. Brevity is not my strong suit. <laughs> Having acknowledged that, whenever I get ready to tell a story, I can always hear Jasmine and Creed chuckling. They're like, oh, boy, everybody started. Here we go. And it's true. And here, I'll give it to you another way. You can, if you listen to the audio of the Oprah Winfrey show, we were on Owns Where Are They Now? I think they showed a clip of it. And when we actually did Oprah, I forget when it was, somewhere in the 90s. But Oprah had asked... How, given the success of the show, is it possible for all of you to stay humble? 
And I said, yes, I have a story I should tell you. And as soon as I said that, you can hear Jasmine and Creed just giggling right then and there. Because I was like, oh, Lord, you got Oprah and national television. He's about to tell a long-ass story. Here we go. <laughs> and it's true. Because, it, it, again, it's all a true story. That I was on a plane, and I'm flying, and I had a, I'm on a red eye from Los Angeles to New York. And there was a stop in Chicago. I get off the plane to switch to get to my other plane, and I go into the newsstand. When I go into the newsstand, these two young African-American women outside, and I could see them talking. They were like, is that him? I was like, yeah, I think that is him. And I was thinking, oh, gosh, it's 5.45 in the morning. I do not feel like being bothered right now. And then they just started screaming, it's him, it's him. And they came running in the store. And I was like, oh, gosh, here we go. And whew, they went right by me, right uh-huh. past me. Just started going, it's dead man. It's dead man. <laughs> Wow. So Stedman was standing behind me. <laughs> and he didn't know who I was and could care less. <laughs> I ate all that humble pie. Thanks to this Oprah Winfrey. So, no, I never get too full of myself. Thank you very much. So, I will leave you with that long winded story. I love your stories. <laughs> I'm just here to. <laughs> Ladies, have a great weekend. You too. Thanks again, Daryl. This is great. Thank you so much. Candace Bembo is a writer and educator. She's appeared on Huffington Post Live and is a columnist with Urban Cusp Magazine. Her work has also appeared in Pathios, For Harriet, and Ebony.com. She's unapologetically vocal about flourishing of Black girl magic, improved so, and her latest project, the lemonade syllabus. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. This is Karan with Black Girl Nerds Podcast. And today I have a magnificent, glorious guest. Her name is Candace Benbo. And in case you haven't heard of her, she is an educator. She is a professor and my personal Facebook muse. Candace has created the lemonade syllabus. It has gotten recognition all over the world, featured in Essence, New York Magazine, The Telegraph over in the UK. She has created this lemonade syllabus for us. It is by us. And welcome to the show, Candice. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I love Black Girl Nerds. So oh, I just great. Like, arrived at this point of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your life and your work. Currently, I am a doctoral student in religion and society at Princeton Theological Seminary. There, I look at the theological implications of um, gender violence on Black women um, that Black women and Black girls experience, particularly in ways that lead them into the trajectory of mass incarceration or the ways in which this gender violence works on the bodies of Black women who aren't incarcerated but restrict them in certain ways. So I look at the ways in which, like, the church like theology can restrict us from living free lives and the ways in which this gender violence works to 
physically incarcerate us in jails, prisons, and detention centers. And I'm also a lecturer at uh, in Women and Gender Studies at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, where I teach the introductory classes on race, gender, and sexuality. And I'm a writer. I started writing a, a I've always written, which is, um, I look back at my high school annual and my high school yearbook, and I said I wanted a career as a writer and in entertainment. And so it's just really interesting how full circle these things come. So you give me life daily. Let me first say that (laughs) we connected through our mutual friend, Melanie Pratt and online and uh, yes. Hey, Mel, we connected over a discussion about women in the church and our sexuality. Mm-hmm. How does your work speak to women about their sexuality and their freedom? What's interesting is probably my my third year of seminary, I began developing, at first I want to say I identify as a womanist and I uh, created developed what I call red lip theology out of my love and passion for womanism. Yes. Red lip theology is everything (laughs) to me. Thank you. (laughs) And so, and so part of it is because I'm a church girl born and raised. Like my mama first felt me kick when she was singing in mercy seat Baptist church in Winston-Salem. So I've been a church girl all of my life and I know the ways in which we're taught to like separate our spirituality and our sexuality. Like we're taught that the flesh doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Like Paul says, in this flesh dwells no good thing, right? But Jesus came in a body and that we have to realize, particularly as black women, that all of us is holy, right? And all of us is sacred. And so part of what relic theology and what I what I aspire to do in my work is to literally like remember us where the ways in which we where the ways in which like theology has separated our minds and our bodies and our spirits and have allowed us to think that, you know, these things dwell in competition with each other, but they really dwell in unison. And when we allow for our whole bodies to align as black women, I think that that's where we see the power of our creativity. And I think that's why Lemonade has been such a powerful tool. And so many of us are resonating with it is because we have in this one like piece of art, all of us, our entire bodies, our emotions, like our, our sexuality and sensuality, our yearnings for God to fix a mess that like we really need God to fix. Like it's happening all at the same time. And we don't have to, we don't have to feel like God only loves parts of us. Mm -hmm. So that's where I see the, the greatest, like the greatest creativity of the work that I'm trying to do and its impact. So what exactly is the lemonade syllabus and how did it come about? So after after watching Lemonade, and you are the ultimate Beyonce stand. Let me say that. Let me tell you, I like. So first of all, let me just say, in my head, we are homegirls, <laughs> and anytime we have had an issue, in my head, we have literally like text each other and like, <laughs> called each other. So like, that is my girl. <laughs> but like, what was what was so cool was. 
so many people were live tweeting. So many people were like posting on Facebook. I didn't live tweet. I didn't. I wanted to watch it. But afterwards, there were some sisters who had been who messaged me that Sunday and that Monday and were like, "Hey." the Sunday and Monday following the premiere and said, what are some books that I can read? Because I hear you talking about their strong feminist, black feminist and womanist messages in this. So what are some things that I can read that will help me understand black feminism and womanism, which I thought were really cool questions for, for black sisters to be asking me who aren't in the Academy. Mm -hmm. And I think that, a lot of people don't realize that so many different kinds of sisters are accessing information via social media. So all of the people who, who follow and listen to us aren't necessarily just Black women who have degrees, right? And so I'm getting these same questions over and over again. So Monday night, like I literally randomly text like two of my friends and was like, do you think it would be corny if I did, like if I asked a couple of people if they would do like a lemonade syllabus with me on social media? And they were like, no, nah, I think it would be corny. Like it might be cool. Like you should do it. So Tuesday, I literally reached out to a couple of my Facebook friends who are also colleagues and like really strong friends of mine and said, hey, if you watch Lemonade, can you help me with this with this project, Lemonade Syllabus? Send me five texts or music that you feel best like accompany Lemonade. So they say yes. And literally Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of the following week of Lemonade was supposed to be like just this social media campaign that I did for three days and that was gonna be it. Well, was that uh, it? Was that was that all? That was all, right? <laughs> so, so what was so funny was like the first day, other people like began messaging me like, "Oh, can I participate?" Sure, didn't think anything of it. Thursday and Friday, when people were like, "Essence picked this up," and I was like, "Picked up what?" Like I was I was actually on my way to a lemonade watch party. My friend hosted a lemonade luncheon for us. Mm -hmm. And somebody texted me and was like, Essence picked it up. And I was like, picked up what? And they were like, the lemonade syllabus. And I said, the one I did? And they were like, <laughs> they were like, yeah, like it's on their site. And I was like, you are lying. So they sent it to me and I was like, yo, I did not even, I didn't know that so many people were resonating with it. So Someone suggested a really, really good friend of mine, Reverend Otis Moss the mm Third -hmm. at Trinity, messaged me and was like, "You should really find a way to have all of these in one place." And so I was like, "Yeah, look, like like a real syllabus." And so I got with my friend who's a graphic designer, and literally in the span of a day, we compiled. All of the suggestions that we received, that I received via email, because I really tried when people reached out to me via social media, I gave them my email address. Mm -hmm. I was like, email it to me. And so in a day, we sat, compiled all of the suggestions in 
what is the syllabus? And what was so dope is that like it was also intergenerational. So like yes. the note pages and my grandmother loves this, right? So the note pages in the syllabus were her idea. So she every chance she gets when somebody tells her about it, she's like, Well, you know, they didn't have no note pages in it. And when I saw it, I told him, Y'all need y'all need y'all need place people to take their notes like a real syllabus. So so it was just this, you know, I think that what ultimately it was was that it grew from these texts that explain lemonade or or offer like an explanation of the like womanist themes and the black feminist themes in it in lemonade to like this celebration of black womanhood Mm -hmm. period Mm -hmm. right that like so many of us saw lemonade and saw ourselves and saw that like from these like depths of pain you can really emerge and like live this like glorious beautiful life and all of these texts in some way shape or form point to that that like black that pain whether it's systemic racism or whether it's the pain that has come from interpersonal relationships does not kill the spirit the power and the magic of black women and so lemonade syllabus like shows that in this very profound way that i think that that's what people have been resonating with the most now the lemonade syllabus at last count had about 200 cataloged works. And I know because I follow you because I'm a rabbit fan of yours that people were still trying to submit after you had completed the syllabus and you had over 60 contributors. What has that kind of attention done for you as an academician? So at last, when, when we went to final print, we had 75 contributors and 258 resources. Since then, I literally in my inbox right now have 30 unread emails from people who literally like the title says submit to lemonade syllabus Uh and then other emails from people that I have no clue who they are, which I'm pretty sure is a suggestion for another title or text. And that doesn't include what's in my Twitter message, direct Mm -hmm. messages, Facebook, like it's going down in the DM. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Like, I thought I was getting ready to get a boo and people is telling me about books. So it, it's been, it's been really for me, I think what I love the most, and I, I'm really honestly, and, I, and I'm saying this because I want whoever hears it, I'm really thinking through and have, and I'm open to a myriad of suggestions for how, like, this continues. Because what I think that this is doing, too, And I'm not saying that this hasn't happened in other spaces, but I am saying that I think that Lemonade Syllabus is in this vein and trajectory of work. I think that what this is doing is further tearing down the divide between the academy and the community. Mm. Because a lot of these books are only discussed in the context of a classroom. Right. Some people even submitted journal articles that you only get in the context of academic mm-hmm. spaces, right? So 
I was someone tagged me in a status and I was reading it just yesterday. It was a lady who said that she had a learning disability. She had two children. So between the learning disability and two children, she tried to go to school twice and it just didn't work. And the lemonade syllabus, she felt like gave her access to conversations that if she would have had the opportunity to go to school, she would have those. I have literally been, I've read, I haven't been able to respond to all the Facebook messages, Mm -hmm. but a sister messaged me on Facebook and said she created a book club and the book club is only, and I thought, I was like, wow, it's only for sisters who just graduated high school. Wow. To go through Lemonade Syllabus and read these books together. For me, I've always I've always felt called to education. Mm-hmm. But what I never wanted to do, and this is one of the things that my mom always pushed me, was to never forget the people who are not in those spaces with you, mm-hmm. right? So I've been blessed to be, I mean, you know, Princeton... Princeton ain't nothing to sneeze at, right? It's right. It's, a, it's a pretty, you know, pretty good look, right? right? So, but at the end of the day, I'm still a girl from Winston Salem, North Carolina, mm-hmm. who has friends that graduated from high school and was like, "I'm good," you know, who are not any less intelligent than me, who are not any less deserving of the belief that they can that they can access these works and engage them critically and read them and and raise and ask questions. So what's been excited about this for me is that there are other writers and authors who want to be connected to Lemonade Syllabus who know that 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 was my primary audience, Mm -hmm. right? Like this wasn't this wasn't primarily for the academy, right? These were the women who were in my inbox asking me for this were sisters who were not in the academy, right? So they know that and they want to be a part of that. And it's just made my call to that space for Black women that much more clear. It should go without saying, but nothing that's really going to make an impact in this world is going to come without criticism. Right. And you have faced some criticism from some right. of our most beloved scholars right. in our own history and history of the women of color and womanist theory and feminist theory. You know, Bell Hooks, <laughs> Hampton, you right. know, have written some really controversial remarks concerning Lemonade. So first, I'd like to address the impact of Lemonade itself. And right. then I'd like for you to talk just a little bit about those criticisms and how they have impacted you. So, so lemonade, I mean, I think that, that the moment that we, I had a lemonade watch party, Mm -hmm. right? None of us knew what we were about to watch. Right. Right. But the sisters who were with me and then the text messages that I began to receive, it was clear probably within the first four minutes what is she about to do to us, right? The emotional vulnerability, the emotional journey that she took us, like she literally took us from like the moment of like thinking that pain and heartache and whatever is on the horizon 
through anger, through emptiness, through sorrow, through do I really want to feel like I can heal and work this through Mm -hmm. to like the joy that can be the other side. Right. So part of the response to lemonade that has been negative, I think has everything to do with the fact that Beyonce did it. Right. So here's the thing. There are black feminist writers and authors and critics and, and theorists and there are womanist theorists and and writers who've done that same thing with their work. Mm-hmm. The problem is that those works have really not gone beyond the academy. Right. Certain spaces, right? So so there are some women who know the power of some of these works, right? But the average sister doesn't. And so what what people really wrestled with was here you have this major, this iconic pop star, right? That feminist theory has created all of this conversation around when it comes to colorism, when it comes to capitalism, when it comes to all of these these ways in which Beyonce as a person and as a body and as a, and, and as a, as a icon have been critiqued here, this person has created an art and an offering that has spoken to the hearts of so many black so women, many. so many that like black women are literally like, I just want to be free. Like, I just, I literally want to, want to figure out, where I'm not moving forward and I want to move forward. And and I have to tell you, and I've shared this before in, in, in some of our discussions on Black Girl Nerds, that I'm not a Beyonce fan. Right. I appreciate her artistry. I appreciate her pop musicism. I appreciate her place in our society and in our culture. But she was not one of my favorite artists. Right. But after watching Lemonade, I'm definitely staying adjacent <laughs> because it was so it was such a moving and powerful work in so many ways right. that you cannot deny the impact. And to do so in some ways makes me feel like either you are just on a road to perpetual hate or you just right. really hate yourself. Right, right. And so and or you've so- never read a book. Like, you know, or you just really just don't like this girl, right. right? And like, and I was telling, I was in a, I was in a, and I'm not saying this for everyone, but I was with my friends yesterday and I said, a lot of us got to deal with the fact that Beyonce is the pretty girl in high school that we wanted to hate, but was nice to us. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. we really, it's the girl who we wanted to find a reason not to like, but she was so sweet. And so nice to everybody that we really just didn't have a reason not to like her, but we did anyway. Yeah, because who cares um, if the if the if the lead cheerleader wins? She's she went she's winning anyway. She's winning anyway. Or the fact that like so as somebody who has watched and literally have talked about this before, you get a different Beyonce starting around the album four. Mm-hmm. through these last ones mm-hmm. that like if you just really listening like this is somebody who's like I'm grown like the other part that we really just don't get with Beyonce is that Beyonce is a southern 
church girl. Mm-hmm. Like this girl still has the same pastor that she's had, you know, for years. Mm-hmm. Like she was born and raised in the church. When you miss the complexities of one first being Southern and then two first being and then being steeped and raised in the church, you miss a lot of what even she's doing as she's like blurring the lines between what we consider to be the sacred and the secular. Mm-hmm. So that that critique came, right? And part of it was like, I was a little, I was shocked at, but then I wasn't because I was like, this girl could, she's not ever going to do right for some people, right? So when Lemonade Syllabus came out, the critiques, like the strongest critiques that I got had everything to do with, some of them were like, how dare you not list these particular poets do you like someone was like do you and your friends not even read black poetry what from black female writers from black female poets because the lemonade syllabus is free let me say that the lemonade syllabus is being offered completely free it is a list of works of black authors poets um, who have contributed to our lives and like you said if you're not in academia you you may not have had access to some of these but it's promoted so many different things not just a new thirst for knowledge a a seeking of information for some of the themes that were represented and you know people are picking up books that they might not have otherwise you know the impact is so much further than it just being the work of a pop star yeah, and and so and so the strongest critique came from the academy, right? Like how you know that I didn't include some some particular scholars, and then there became like some weird personal attacks that I was just doing this because I think Beyonce is Jesus. It got really painful because as a as a note of like personal entrance into the conversation of lemonade lemonade didn't just lemonade wasn't about for me a a heartbreak or going through a relationship i just you know lost my mother in november unexpectedly and for me watching lemonade was about the ability to come from such a painful moment mm-hmm that you never in your life thought that you were going to experience, right? And that life and love and healing and joy could still be possible. That was what Lemonade did for me. And so for people to critique my intentions behind Lemonade, right? Mm -hmm. It got really ugly. And I just really had to back away because when you, first of all, it always hurts when people are just talking about you and being mean. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's always heightened when you're out, when you're already grieving. So my mom was a single mother and I was an only, and I'm an only child. So Mm -hmm. my mother is my immediate family and would be the first person that I would call in excitement and in just sadness. And she, I couldn't call her. Right. So So I had to really lean on people who were contributors to the syllabus Mm -hmm. and who were my friends and the people who, the sisters who were in my inbox and the brothers who were like, this is an amazing work, right? And realize that nothing that I do or that anyone does that comes from a genuine space will always be received that way. Mm -hmm. And that the one thing that you you can control 
is to know the space in which you operate in and to know that the work that you did came from love. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I am, right? That this was this was an offering of love because I just love black women, right? I love black women and this fueled a creativity in me that I hadn't felt, you know, since my mom left. And I think that when you ever come from these spaces of, of genuine love and genuine creativity and excitement, that nothing but magic can come from that. <laughs> and that's really what you're seeing when you wake up and somebody's in your inbox saying, you know, like this morning I woke up to, I was really, really having the sisters, like I was really, really having a bad day. I was really ha- I've been having a bad six months. I was contemplating suicide. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the list. Somebody sent me the lemonade syllabus And I got one of the self-care books on my Kindle and I'm going to read it this weekend. Like that is to me what this is about. That like this sister may never message me again. We may never have a conversation again, but it's going to be something in that book that's going to let her know like you can actually make it right. Those are not just the only stories. The, The stories of professional women who are like, I knew these women a sister who's a professor messaged me and was like, half of these works I've read, but this lemonade syllabus together, let me see the power of black women. And I really am getting ready to go and rock my rock my argument and my case for tenure because this wow. empowered me that much. Like that's, that's the stuff that I have had to learn in the last 24 hours that when people are coming at me negatively, that's what matters, right? Mm-hmm. That that women can see possibility through the syllabus because it came from a space of genuine and true love. You know something that's very powerful when you spoke about it being an intergenerational work, the Lemonade Syllabus as, as a whole. Mm-hmm. I was so proud because I just bought my daughter three Virginia Hamilton books. Yeah. Um, and the people could fly. Mm-hmm. is her favorite right now. And I saw that a few times during the submission when you were listing them all. Uh-huh. And I was just really blessed by that because it's not just for adults. It's not right. just for Generation X or the millennials or, but our children can can glean from this too. And then many of these books I have in my library and I've never read completely. Me too, me too. And like, I really have to... This is why people, this is why it was important for me to get a cross section of my friends who, and and people who would contribute because there were youth, there were youth pastors Mm -hmm. and teachers and people who specifically work with youth who were intentional about having books for young, for young sisters and people who, who've asked for more. There's 1000 black girl books from, um, yes named Marley that I've told them to 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 reach out and and get a list from there but it was it it was amazing to see you had sisters who contributors who are in grad school who are just working who are you know called into ministry who are professors who who are cross-section of age right and who are cross-section of experiences but say you know this visual album does something for everybody 
and it's intergenerational because and it's because Beyonce in in Lemonade didn't leave out the the children either, right? So we see Blue, right? We see Kuvanjane, like we see other little girls who Amandala, who are literally our future mm-hmm. and who are leading us, and that we have a responsibility to. That I just think is I think the whole project has been powerful. I agree. Now you spoke a little bit about bridging the gap between the sacred and the secular. Right. So how did it feel to be mentioned in the read? Yo. (laughs) That was so dope. (laughs) Yo. So let me. I hollered. I hollered. I was like, I know her. Let me, let me, let me tell you. So two years ago, I went to the read live in Charlotte. Right. And I'm literally walking into the venue up the steps with my friend Raquel as Kid Fury and Crystals are walking down the steps. And like, I was like, hey. And he was like, hello. Like, it was so <laughs> funny because they were trying to go get cookout. So they were really not, like, they, they were really not trying to li- really talk to people. They was hungry. So, so I'm making my bed listening to because it downloads on my phone and I was like oh we got it we got it early this week because it wasn't on Thursday so I'm listening and he's like black excellence goes out to Candace that doesn't do anything Mm because how many Candaces in the world and Crystal's is like what did Candace do she made the lemonades (gasps) that's me (laughs) that that is me all day long that's me right So I stumped my toe. I'm like (laughs) jumping up and down in the bedroom, like texting my friends, like, I'm on the read. It speaks to literally the heart of what we want Eliminate Syllabus to do, which is to go to everybody, Mm -hmm. right? That like my aim was not for this to be an academic project. I mean, I write papers for the academy, mm-hmm. right? I got to do journal articles and all that stuff for the academy. Like that's not that's not where this was for me. This was this was for the people. And so for it to make the read, it spoke to the fact that like that's what that that happened and people acknowledged that. And I also was like I was listening to it and I was like Kelly Rowland was on the read a month ago. Right. Like three episodes ago. You know, and right. here I am. I was like, you know what? This is like this this is pretty dope. Like I I literally left the house and went and got a cookout shake and was like, you know, <laughs> life's pretty good for me right now. Like it's it was it was an amazing, amazing feeling. It was. I it heard was. that. Well, yeah. I know where to find you because I follow you. I, I get so much just strength in life from here. You speak so lovingly about your mother and your healing. Thank I, you. I get a lot of, of just joy because your poster are, are full of humor and, and they're so, <laughs> they're so well thought out. We don't have very much that's provocative in the social media space. You right. know, Facebook will make you hate humanity some days. Right. So I want to thank you for being here, but let's share with our listeners where we can find you on social and where they can get the lemonade syllabus. 
So first you can get the lemonade syllabus from my blog, which is CandiceBenbow.com. So C-A-N-D-I-C-E-B-E-N-B-O-W slash lemonade syllabus. And I will say, as we have already reiterated, because I have had to check a couple of people, the lemonade syllabus is free. Anybody who is charging you to have access to this is doing that illegally and without my consent. And please let me know if you hear and come across that because it is free. Social media, Twitter and Instagram is at Candice Benbow. And my Facebook page is Candice Marie Benbow. My middle name, M-A-R-I-E, Candice Marie Benbo. I'm almost at, like, and I got to figure out how this works because I'm, I think I'm at my, my friend max. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. Nothing. People can still follow you even though you're at your max for friendship. Oh, that's I'm beautiful. not there yet. I want to be like you when I grow up. So, I'm, you know, because you, know. you don't even see, you don't <laughs> see your people anymore. Like, I, yeah. I have to tell my friends, like, just, just text me the picture because I'm, uh, I'm not going <laughs> Well, Candace Bimbo, I want to thank you for joining us for Black Girl Nerds Podcast. You have been a wonderful guest. And thank you so much for your contribution. Eliminate syllabus. This is not the end. This is only the beginning. Oh, thank you so much, sis. I received that. Thanks. Nakia Baris is an actress whose career expands more than 20 years in both TV and film. Her first breakout role was the yellow Power Ranger Tanya from the Power Rangers franchise. But her work doesn't end there. She can be seen in many national commercials and guest starred on TV hit shows like Heart of Dixie, Melissa and Joey, New Girl, and most recently Angie Tribeca. Currently, Nakia is a producer and actress in a web series called Class Dismissed. Despite her long career, she never forgets where she got her start and can be seen at many conventions all over the U.S. meeting fans from her Power Ranger days. Thank you for tuning in to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm your host today, Alexis Page, and I am here with a very special gift. Most people know her as Nakia Breeze, and most people know her as being the Yellow Power Ranger in the Turbo Movie, the Turbo Series, and Zio. She is also a producer, writer, and done amazing things over the years of her career. How are you today, Nakia? I am wonderful, and thank you for such a lovely introduction, Alexis. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So the main reason we're here is to talk about your web series, Class Dismissed. What can you tell us about it? Ooh, Class Dismissed. It's a family-friendly series. It's centered around three grade school friends, Liz, the sassy TV extra turned teacher's aide, and the easygoing, free-spirited first grade teacher who uses yoga and Tai Chi to teach her students. And BJ, the loudmouth PE teacher, failed comedian. And of course, there's Nancy, who's the nosy perfectionist school mole who wants to just get into everybody's business. But one of the premises of our show is what happens in the teacher's lounge stays in the teacher's lounge. <laughs> so how did you get the idea to create Class Dismissed? Oh, that is, that's real funny that you ask. Uh, well, when I finished Power Rangers, I started substitute teaching because I, I had a degree from a, from UCLA. And when I finished the show, it was like, okay, well, what do you do next? Because, you know, a lot of actors don't automatically just go straight to another television show. You know, it's just that's just not what happens. So uh, my mom had suggested that I started substitute teaching and that way I'm, I would still have the flexibility of auditioning. So I started substitute teaching in the inner cities of Los Angeles, and oh my goodness, just my experience, 
I wrote down some of the craziest scenarios and situations that happened there. And boom, classic. Actually, in 2009, I wrote Crazy Days, which is also based off of my experience in teaching and acting. And uh, I filmed the pilot episode, and it didn't quite come out the way that I wanted it to. So I enlisted my friend, Thomas Lazar, who helped me write the show that I wanted to write. And Class Dismissed was formed from my experiences in the inner city with the kids, preschool, all the way up to sixth grade, because um, some of the schools go up to sixth and seventh, sixth, seventh and eighth grade. I tell you, Alexis, there are some funny, funny situations that have occurred with this, the students as well as the teachers. So I wrote about it in Class Dismissed. I guess it's kind of a blessing in disguise that those <laughs> incidents happen. So now you can have this great show. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so earlier you, you were talking about UCLA. So correct me if I'm wrong. I read that you were the first African-American student to be in the theater program at UCLA. Can you tell me about that? That, that is correct. Um, in 19, I think it was 92, I graduated from high school. So I auditioned. That was the first year that the theater department opened up to incoming freshmen. And they were only accepting 50, 50 students. And I auditioned in San Francisco, and there were two African-Americans accepted that year. One was a African-American boy named Craig Kirkwood, and then myself, African-American female. So I felt quite honored to be the only one, <laughs> only, only female. But, you know, it was a really, really great experience there. Had a, had a really great time. So what initially got you into acting? I know a lot of people, you know, they, they did it when they were a kid. What was it for you? Oh my gosh. I loved performing since I was small. I mean, nobody could tell me to sit down and be quiet because I was just the family entertainer. I would watch the Carol Burnett show. I would come up with sketches and um, imitate her and imitate some of her characters. And then I would also get my brother and just uh, pull him along and we would create like little different scenarios for our parents and we perform. So I've always had just the desire to perform. I was in theater when I was younger, acrobatics, dance, just different different things, and just love being on stage and love making people laugh. That's just uh, that's just me. So what were some of your first um, big acting experiences when you first started out? Oh, I wouldn't call them big. <laughs> um, when I was first starting out, I you know was where I was in a couple of music videos. So that, that was great. That was a great ex- experience. I, you know, you get to see how things are filmed and so forth. And then my first, like, I guess, paid acting gig was for the Psychic Network. <laughs> <laughs> when Cleo, Miss Cleo was, was big. But it was a reenactment of a situation that had occurred when a psychic knew that a fast food restaurant was going to be robbed. And so I played a clerk in a fast food restaurant. It was funny. When I look back, it was funny. But, you know, I, I got a chance to act and I got paid for it. So I was like, whoop, whoop, word. You know, I was excited about it. And then shortly thereafter, I ended up getting the audition for Power Rangers. And after five auditions, I was blessed with a role. So Power Rangers was obviously my very first real, real acting job. I learned a lot on the set just from being around, you know, experienced crew and, uh, and actors. Now, can you tell me one of your most memorable moments when being on Power Rangers? Yes. I remember the very uh, first time I stepped on set in the Valencia Studios in the uh, command center. And even in my own dressing room, and it had my name on it. I remember sitting there and just in awe of the whole experience and the opportunity that God had put before me. And 
when I first stepped in the command center, it was so bright. And what you guys couldn't see, the audience couldn't see, was the amount of people that stood on that set that day, the first time I had stepped on set there, there must have been about 50 people, producers, wardrobe, crew, and, you know, they were all there checking out, you know, see how I was going to do as the next Yellow Power Ranger. So I was nervous. I was nervous, elated at the same time. And I just remember looking around and seeing that tube where Zordon's head floats, <laughs> talking to an empty tube. <laughs> but the, the experience was surreal. I, at the time, was a junior at UCLA, so I was still essentially studying for theater while pursuing my acting career, being blessed to act while I'm in school for it. It was just, it was surreal. It was, it was a blessing and just a blessing. Now, as a, a Power Ranger fan myself, I know that I was, you know, super excited whenever I could watch a movie or the TV show. How was it like that back in the 90s? You know, having people come up to you and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's always a blessing, even today, when people recognize me and they come up and they feel comfortable enough to come up and say hello or ask for an autograph. It is such an honor to be put in a position to make someone's day like that. To me, it's an honor. I know that there's some other, you know, actors, actresses that don't want to be bothered and all that stuff. And But I find it to be an, an honor. It's very surreal to see yourself on screen and, you know, sometimes when my commercials come on and, and my boys, because I have a, two boys, 13 and 15, and my husband were sitting there and, you know, my commercial will pop up. It's still really kind of surreal to see myself on screen and to see the expressions of, of my boys and the excitement of my boys and my husband when they see me on screen, too. It's just it's a blessing because I, I don't take it lightly. I know that this is a very, very difficult business to be in because I've been in it for so long and it ebbs and flows. Sometimes you have great years and sometimes not so great years and you know you just you really have to love it you have to love it to stay in it so yeah that's my experience <laughs> I mean I don't know what that feels like but I bet it would be really humbling in a way you know to be like you know what I'm still here and I'm still working kind of thing yeah. and and I know conventions are a big deal now you know especially I feel like now more than ever we see more former Power Rangers and other people going to conventions so what's that like for you? Amazing. I didn't even know what a convention was until 2000. I think it was 2009. I remember, you know, when Facebook started coming alive and I know MySpace was first and all that stuff. And I remember reading a comment. Someone had emailed me or, or uh, messaged me. I think it was on MySpace at that time and said, Nakia, when are you going to start doing conventions? I was like, what is a convention? What is that? When I first went to a convention, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know that people would remember me. I didn't know that they would remember my episodes and my morphing sequences. It was that, again, I know I'm using surreal a lot, but it was a surreal experience that I was that memorable and that people loved my character that much. And it's it's an honor. It's absolutely an honor. So... Um, to be able to travel the world and meet fans around the world, literally, I just started going overseas last year and meeting some of my, my London fans. And it's extraordinary. It's a blessing. Oh, my gosh. I, it's, it's great to be able to travel, have a great time. And even since I've been off the show, I've met so many other Power Rangers from, 
you know, seasons after mine and become really, really great friends with the Time Force cast. I mean, all of them. And even, you know, some of the Wild Force and, and so forth. Because I didn't watch Power Rangers after I left the show. And that's just in all honesty. <laughs> so these conventions, especially Power Morphicon that's happening in August, all of the Rangers from all of the seasons are there. So you get to see the generations after I left. And it's, and it's great. We're just a huge Power Ranger family. Literally, we really are. <laughs> and I, I truly believe, you know, I see pictures, you guys are always tagging each other on Instagram and like running into each other, having really funny photos and stuff. So I, I truly believe it. I think that's probably one of the, the rare things about Power Rangers is that even though, you know, it's a kid's show and you guys are on it for a short amount of time, but it's such an experience that only you guys have that it bonds you guys together. And I think that's one of the reasons why the show has gone on so long, too. Yes, no, I agree. And I, and I think it also, um, I've gotten a lot of messages from from fans saying that it's really helped them. It helped them with social issues that they were having, self-esteem issues, bullying. Some of our episodes really touched touched on some heartfelt issues that, that go on in the community. And, you know, I get messages about how, you know, Tanya helping her boyfriend, Sean, to make the right decision about cheating and things like that really touched the hearts of, it's just, it, it's amazing, um, some of the messages that came through Power Rangers and how it's really shaped and molded some adult lives today because they were kids then, now they're adults. I know for me that I, I really like that the girls got into the action. You know, I used to think I could fight, man, when I was watching. I'm like, look at my karate moves and all this stuff. So I like that they, you know, didn't have the girls on the side. Like they were usually one of the first people to run in and like, I got this. And they were also smart, more than just a pretty face. So I like that they did that with the characters. And it's still like that today. I mean, I think one of the seasons, but like the girl was the leader. And I was like, yes, let's go. Yes, yes this is true. This is true. Well, first of all, I liked the diversity, too. I wanted to bring that up. I liked the diversity of Power Rangers. I liked that women were kicking butt just as much as the men were kicking butt, for sure. Well, we were high schoolers, so I guess I wouldn't say men and women, but <laughs> we're men and women now. Teens with attitudes, um, maybe? Yes, yes, there you go. Um, I love, you know, I loved that. I loved that it was equal opportunity for, for all of us when we were on Power Rangers, for sure. That leads me into my next question. Diversity is the hot topic in the entertainment industry. What was it like being back then in the 90s on this TV series and, you know, being even the second black Power Ranger, a female we had on there? How was that like back then? Well, I was excited about the opportunity. Like I said before, you know, I was a superhero. Right. And I can still say I'm a superhero. <laughs> so that that was great. I think, you know, diversity has come a long way. I think there's more opportunities for for African Americans and people of color. Um, but I do feel like we still have some strides to make. You know, we still have some some obstacles to overcome. We still have some doors to kick in. But I, I you know, I, I will say that we have definitely overcome and uh, made some some leaps and some bounds. And I know that Shonda Rhimes has really opened up some doors for some really powerful African-American lead, women leads, which I love. So now what we need is we need a, so we have drama. Mm -hmm. We have two dramas. Yeah. We need a comedy. Ooh, yeah. We need a comedy. Yeah, right. Who to go to? It's Nakia. Right. Nakia. Yes. You know, I fit that cat. I, I feel like you fit it perfectly. You are so funny, especially on, on your uh, show, Class Dismissed. Liz... She is all over the place, but she's still a, a lovable character. You know what I mean? Like she drives her friends crazy, but she's going to be there when they need her, you know? Yes. 
I think I think that's amazing. So, you know, like you said earlier, you know, there's more roles out there, but there there could always be more. Is that what prompted you to create your own kind of show? Absolutely. As I was saying earlier, I grew up watching the Carol Burnett show. I grew up watching comedy. I grew up making my family laugh or trying to make my family laugh. And I wanted to create a show that was family friendly, that uh, everybody could watch, especially my family as well, because there's a lot of shows that I have to have my kids leave the room because it's too adult. This show is exactly what I think uh, people need. Class dismissed, you know, covers teachers that, you know, everybody's gone to school. So whether you're homeschooled or whether you're in public school, private school, whatever, you've met a BJ, a PE teacher, or it doesn't even have to be a PE teacher that really doesn't care. They're just there to get a job. They want to crack jokes on people, try to date the moms. You've met a Liz who is just scattered brain. She really cares about her one-on-one Timmy, but she really cares about pursuing her acting as well. So if her acting takes off, then she's going to say goodbye to her current job. Then, you know, you have Anne who really, really loves her children, mm-hmm. really loves her students, and really just wants to do right. And then we have Nancy. Nancy, who was a hot bowl of mess, that really just wants to rub uh, rub her nose in places where it's not supposed to be. But I think my characters are so relatable. And, you know, the confessionals uh, really help to create our show because you get to hear the minds of each character, what we're really, really thinking, which I think just really adds, sets my show apart from other shows that element. And so, yeah, that's why I created Class Dismissed because I wanted to play a character that I would love to play. And Liz is, is so me and so just character driven and just funny. And I wanted to, to make some other opportunities for other actors, some very talented actors. And I specifically wanted my show to be diverse. And that's why you see different nationalities on my show. And you'll continue to see that. And you'll continue to see other Power Rangers guest starring on the show, like Karen, Ashley, and Kat did. Yes. So how is season two? Is it in the works? Can you tell me how that's going? Season two is in the works. We have an Indiegogo campaign that's going up right now. We were asking for 25000 to film 12 episodes. Last season, I paid. 99% 99% of everything. We had a, a small Indiegogo campaign raised like $900. So that didn't really do much. I really didn't know too much about Indiegogo, how to do the perks and all of that stuff. So yeah, so season one, I paid for. Season two, I was asking for help to pay for season two, but season two is going to happen regardless. We've raised about $6,000 out of our goal of 25000 The campaign ends May 4th, but I am going to continue it, not through Indiegogo, but on my Facebook page for those who want to donate and they can still get perks and so forth. Yeah, so season two will probably start filming again in, uh, in August, and it's just going to be a ball of fun with really incredible guest stars. I did announce that Jason Font is going to be in a season two. We are going to have a couple of other Power Ranger, male Power Rangers, and Karen and Kat will probably most likely come back as well. So yeah, there's a lot to look forward to for season two. And you can support by going to classdismiss.net. We have an Indiegogo little icon at the top and you can click there or you can always PayPal and just say what perk you'd like at nakiabarice at gmail.com that way as well. So you, like you said earlier, you had uh, Karen, Ashley, and Catherine Sullivan. What was it like to be back on set with them again? Well, Kat was so nervous because she hasn't, she hasn't been on screen in, in quite some time. She's done voiceover and done commercials, but she hasn't done 
you know, a television show in, in years. So she was very nervous. And I was like, Kat, come on, this is me. You don't have to be nervous. But she got over her jitters soon after. We had, we had a great time, especially the confessionals, what we do with the confessionals. You know, we have written script and then we let them just improv. So some of the takes that you see in our confessionals are complete improv. And the, oh my gosh, the cast is just hilarious. Now, this was the first time I was on screen with Karen Ashley because Power Rangers, she left and I took her place. So we never worked together. We again had a ball. She was knocking it out of the park. We were, you know, doing the commercial scenes with the cell phone and I can't get over her face when she's like, no, I have not. And uh, what she does with her eyes. And we fell a couple of times when we were filming. It was, it was great. We had a really, really great time. It's, it's a really, really funny show. I recommend it. Everybody from the different characters to the kids on the show. Oh, they're so funny. And I, I agree with you. The confessionals do make a big difference. I love every now and then you get like a, a you know, a side eye, a big <laughs> sigh, you know, something. And I, it, it's, it makes you know the characters more. And you're like, you relate with them, like you said earlier. You know, I think it's a great show. And I feel like everybody should watch it. Thank you. And I hope everybody goes out and supports, you know, the Indiegogo. Because, you know, even though season two is happening, it, let's make a big season two, you know? That would be really, really great. That that was my goal, to make a big season two. With season one, the reason why we were asking for a little bit more was uh, my initial goal was to have 12 episodes for season one. But with me paying for it myself, we were only allotted eight episodes. So we only filmed eight episodes. Season two, I, I would like to... to film 12 episodes that's why we're asking for 25,000 so we're gonna see how much we can stretch whatever we we earn and we'll just go from there so we'll just keep campaigning until we can get close to our goal I think that's the only way to do it yeah I think that's a that's a good idea and I I hopefully after this podcast people will rush to go support I know I'm supporting so I think it's a, a great show and I would love to see many many more seasons and episodes Thank you. So I just want to reiterate that, you know, our Indiegogo campaign ends May 4th and you can find us at Class Dismissed on the Indiegogo or classdismissed.net. And even though Indiegogo ends May 4th, I'm going to continue to campaign on my Facebook page, Nakia.Barise. And Barise is B-U-R-R-I-S-E, Nakia, N-A-K-I-A. And you can donate through PayPal. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put the perks the perks that I'm going to offer on my Facebook page. And when you pay through PayPal, you can just say what, what perk you'd like in the little uh, notes. And uh, we're just going to keep it going. We're going to keep it going until we start season two, you know? I think that's a good way to start. <laughs> now, do you have any other social media accounts you want to shout out before we end this? Sure. My Twitter is Nakia Baris, Instagram, Nakia Baris. Facebook, again, is Nakia.Baris. Our YouTube channel is Class Dismissed, but the URL is also under my production company, which is Sovereignty Entertainment. It's much easier just to go to classdismissed.net. And what else do I have? Gosh, I have a tw- another Twitter page for a Class Dismissed show, which is Class Dismissed Series. So you can check us out that way. Well, Thank any, you. You're welcome. Any last words before we end this? Oh, I have a website. How about that? Ooh. It's thekiabaris.com. And on there, I have everything so you can find my class dismissed you can find some of the um, items that i sell uh, at conventions and also sell through my website autograph pictures and so forth and i just thank you again black girl nerds for this opportunity and i look forward to partnering with you in the future thank you so much alexis